Hello, and welcome back to the Bench to Boardroom podcast, your podcast about, nope, mm-mm. Hello, and welcome back to Bench to Boardroom, your podcast about transitioning from academics to industry. I'm your host, Cynthia Steele, and we have another fantastic episode for you today. So I think you might know what I mean when you when you hear me say that there are some people that you meet and you click with them instantly and you just have a feeling that this person's going to end up being really big and important in your life. And that is exactly how I felt when I met today's guest, Dr. Barbara Rosco, who wears a multitude of hats, as you'll hear. She is... Um, Oh gosh, the she's a professor at the University of Moran, Department of Ophthalmology. She's the chief medical officer at Culeris Bio, a um, drug development company for uh, patients with glaucoma. She's also the chief medical officer for a company called My Eyes that sends out at-home tonometers, which is a way to measure eye pressure in your eye. Um, she and her husband started a foundation that you'll hear about uh, to honor their son, Joseph, who had dyslexia and uh, very tragically passed away as, as a young adult. And so um, they took a lot of that energy and people's willingness to reach out and help and turn it into a foundation that truly benefits young people with dyslexia. So we'll put a lot of links in the show notes so you can find out where you can learn more about uh, Barb's many different hats. Uh, One thing I will say, and I apologize for this, uh, Barb and I do uh, both have deep ophthalmology backgrounds. We do get a little technical at times. Um, We talk about tonometers, again, which is a way to measure pressure in your eye. I think as many of you know, eye pressure needs to be within a certain range in order for you to be able to see when that pressure gets really high, that can be a sign of glaucoma. And that's why you get the dreaded puff of air test when you go see your eye doctor. So I apologize in advance if some of the um, rhetoric gets a little bit technical, but the overall uh, concepts are the same. Uh, Barbara is an absolutely wonderful mentor. She is an incredibly supportive person. And um, I really think that you'll enjoy today's episode. If you're uh, a medical doctor uh, or a medical student who is interested in pursuing research, um, if you're a PhD who's interested in pursuing clinical research, or uh, if you're a would-be entrepreneur, possibly sitting on some intellectual property that you might be interested in working on. This episode, my episode with Julie Tetzloff and my episode with Karen Torahan would be very good for people who um, are interested in starting their own companies. So I could talk to Barb all day. I could probably talk about Barb all day, but I won't. Here's my episode with Dr. Barbara Roscoe. Dr. Barbara Morasco, it is an honor to have you on the Bench to Boardroom podcast. Thank you, Cynthia. I'm so glad you Thank you. I'm so glad you did this. I'm so glad um, I was asked to participate. So it's really an honor. Oh my gosh. So I have known you. um, Oh my gosh. Has it not quite been 10 years, maybe? Me. 
at least 10 years. At least 10 years. Yes. Yes. Because yes, how long we... have you how long have you been living in Florida now? Um, oh, we're going on six years. Okay, yeah. So back yes. from when you were calling on me as an MSL at um, uh, of Utah. Yes, that's right. That's right. So it was um Obviously, for, for those who don't know you, um, we'll, we'll have you introduce yourself in a second. But how I met Barb was actually as, as she just said, as my first MSL job at Bosch and Lam, And I had this key opinion leader, this KOL named Barbara Roscoe that I had to go visit. And thankfully, I had a very wonderful colleague who said, oh, I know Barbara Roscoe and no problem. I'll get you a meeting. And we just had the most wonderful, like little coffee session, didn't we? Talking about research and glaucoma and and everything. And I was just, it, we, we've been friends ever since that moment. And it, it's just been wonderful to have you and have Thanks. you as a mentor and a sponsor and now a member of a uh, guest on my podcast. Yes. And business colleagues, right? And business colleagues. Yes, absolutely. So why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? So thank you. So I always say, which which hat am I wearing, right? Um, so Barbara Roscoe, I'm mm -hmm. a glaucoma specialty trained ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. I am a clinician researcher, an entrepreneur, um, a parent, a wife, um, chief medical officer, and a creative person. I think what I've learned about myself through the years is that I like creativity and I like to build things. And um, so my current role is I still see patients, as you know. So I have an academic appointment as an adjunct professor at the University of Utah, both in ophthalmology and biomedical engineering. And I think that it really enables me to do the best possible job I can from the drug development side. So, you know, it's funny, um, people used to ask me, do I like taking risks? Because this, you know, we'll probably get into it. My career path has not been a straight trajectory at all. But I think I get bored. I really think I need a lot of different aspects to fulfill me. And right now, happy to say that I've got a really good mix of things in my life that um, excite me every morning when I get up. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yes, we will. We will definitely go into all of your hats because. So first of all, you are actually the first MD guest that I have oh, wow. had on this uh, oh, on this podcast. Cool. Because I again, I want to focus on the transition from academics to industry, but I also don't want to negate any of the clinicians or clinicians in training who are industry curious and beyond just being a speaker on you know or being a member of an advisory board. I mean to actually get their feet wet in research and become part of a uh, pharmaceutical or a surgical or whatever it is um, infrastructure. But um, secondly, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's definitely another career path that perhaps people in medical school and in residency don't necessarily think about. So I guess, yeah, let, let's start there with you. So uh, you grew up um, as the child of, eye, of an eye doctor, right? Yep. So you always, did you always know you wanted to be in ophthalmology? I always knew I wanted to be a physician, you know, okay. ever since I was little. And I didn't, I knew ophthalmology the best out of all the subspecialties and or the medical fields just because of being involved with my dad. And it was funny because um, my brother's also an ophthalmologist, so he's a retina specialist. Right. 
And I was in high school and I was like 16 or 17 and I wanted to make some money. So I said to my parents, I want to take a job at Dunkin' Donuts, waking up and making donuts. There was an ad back then, probably when you were maybe not even born. And it was time to make the donuts. And it was like five o'clock in the morning. And my parents just said, there's no way, A, that you're waking up at five o'clock in the morning to make donuts. And my dad said, better yet, I'm going to put you in the lab. So I was in high school and did not really appreciate what he actually did for my brother and I, but he put us in the lab at Columbia and we learned electron microscopy. So I was actually doing electron microscopy as a high school student and then got my name on papers, which is also why I never changed my name. So I was Barbara Roscoe with publications back ever since the 80s. Um, that really enabled me to, you know, it, it enabled my trajectory right into medicine. It definitely helped me as I was applying. Um, and that was my first entree into research, but I got to know ophthalmology. So when I was in medical school, I actually put it last as my electives because I said, let me look at everything else first. I don't want to be biased towards ophthalmology. But I still remember the minute I looked with an ophthalmoscope at the back of the eye and saw the optic nerve in the retina. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I was hooked. And even my brother tried to get away from ophthalmology. He tried to do orthopedics, but he mm -hmm. ended up in ophthalmology. So somehow my dad had this very strong influence. And in fact, my kids, when um, they were little, they used to ask my mom, if she was an ophthalmologist as well, because it seemed like we were all ophthalmologists. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, um, as a total aside, my dentist, like gum specialist, I don't even know what they're called, and the person who just did my root canal, all of them belong to the same family. Like, really? Two people, two dentists married. They had three kids. They all became dentists, and they all wow. married dentists. Oh, and wow. so. And I asked them, I said, well, first of all, what the heck is Thanksgiving like in your yeah. family? <laughs> I think I can assume. But secondly, like one of your, I tell her all the time, one of your grandkids is going to become an artist. Like that's going to be, or they're going to want to go into theater. Like there's going to be w at least one rebel amongst your yes. grandkids. And she was like, oh, you know, I, I don't care. It doesn't matter, you know, but um, all uh, the two of her kids that I've met, um, I asked them, like, didn't you want to rebel? And they said, I yeah. don't know. We just all thought that teeth were really cool. And it wasn't like their parents pushed them in that direction. It's just they think that teeth are cool, which good for them because I think teeth are disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I do. But I do, too. And there's funny because there's a lot of What? A lot of people think eyeballs are disgusting. I was just so. going to say that. When I was a resident, I mean, the, the general surgeons, they didn't have an issue, you know, in the trauma room with open bellies, but they could not look at an open globe. Like that was just grossing. It's very <laughs> funny. But, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I wonder why, you know, why did I go into ophthalmology? Besides finding the eye so cool, I love the fact that it was, a marriage between medicine and surgery. And even though it's defined to a specific organ, it encompasses so many other aspects of systemic pathology, right? So I would think about it from the perspective of the cardiovascular system, oncology, infectious disease, diabetes, endocrine, you know, almost everything, neurology, 
you know, even sure. your prior, you know, podcast talking about the synergy like you, you know, between neuroscience and, um, and ophthalmology, there's so much overlap that it was really cool. Even though you're focused on one organ, it really does open up creativity and exploration into other systemic illnesses. And I think yeah. that's how I address my patients too. I look at the whole patient, which, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we get so micro-focused in one aspect that we forget that this is a patient sitting in front of us. It's not just, you know, we're not just looking at an eyeball, so to speak. Yeah, I know, absolutely. Out of curiosity, if there's anybody listening who's considering where they want to rotate or what subspecialty they might want to go into, do you, do you ever meet residents, not met residents, but do you ever meet any students who ask you how, how does one even go about picking that? Because, for example, I know my sister works with a lot of medical students, and she's given them uh, Myers Briggs tests yes. to look at what what their personality type is, and maybe you know, the joke is, of course, if if you hate patients, and maybe go into radiology or pathology or something yes. like that. But do you have any advice for? You know, that's a great question, Cynthia. And in fact, I get. I do a lot of mentoring. So I work with a lot of medical students, um, undergrads, even high school students saying, you know, how do I get into medicine as a career down the road? And I always invite students to come and shadow me and follow me in the office. For me, I knew I liked the, the medicine and surgery. So that was important. Um, I just did not want to operate. So again, even thinking about glaucoma, it's a medical subspecialty, but it also involves, um, you know, systemic um, pathophysiologies, the way we treat is with medical therapy as well as surgery. And then it's really your, your interest. You know, it's funny, um, my husband's an anesthesiologist, so he meets the patient, puts them to sleep, wakes them up, and then that's it. He doesn't have that chronic care. Glaucoma patients, macular degeneration patients, they are chronic patients. And a lot of times there's not much you can do, but you're there for them. So you almost become that comrade. You become that social worker. You're helping them navigate a loss. They're losing vision. And a lot of times they just want to have someone who cares for them, not necessarily cure them because they realize they can't be cured. You know, I knew my temperament. I knew I could not do oncology. I could not have patients die on me. Um, I once asked a really dear friend of mine who's an oncologist and people loved him. He was just great. And I said, how, how can you do this? Like how? And he said, I don't look at it from the perspective of my patients dying. I look at it as how much more life can I give them? And I was like, wow. And I think a lot of times I look at glaucoma that way. Yeah. You know, if I see somebody who's losing vision, I look at their age, I look at their rate of progression, and I say, okay, can I save their sight and keep them functioning mm-hmm. before, you know, something yeah. happens to them? Um, yeah. And can you save that? I think medicine too, you know, I have found it really, really rewarding. Um, I love my patients. I think that's why I still wear so many hats. I'm not ready yet to give it up because I learned so much from my patients. And I've gotten to the point in my career where I can spend the time and really understand the patient 
and really sure. talk to them. And, um, you know, we forget, you know, we forget how much other things play a role in their, in their ocular complaints. It may yeah. not always be ocular. It could be something else that's underpinning it. That's so true. So obviously you have this, this passion for medicine. So where did the interest in business come from? So I know you had asked me that, did I ever have a business degree? No, I wish I did. I wish I had an epidemiology degree and okay. would have loved public health. Um, business and MBA would have been really nice. You know, it's funny the way I got into industry, so I don't have a PhD. Right. Um, that's another thing that I, you know, said that I do not have. I have an MD, I have a clinical background, but I think I was always inquisitive. And I started doing clinical research and was the principal investigator back in the early 90s, which was the heyday of the prostaglandins. So I was running the phase two, phase three for Lumigan. Um, I was running the Alphagan P phase three. I was running the COSOP study. I was running some phase fours and the Mementine study. And mm -hmm. I sent my CV around. I was in private practice in Long Island. Um, after having done my fellowship in glaucoma at, uh, at, at Cornell. And I wanted to do more clinical research. And Pfizer called me. There was a headhunter. They were looking for someone to come in one day a week for a few hours and sit on the review committee. And I was like, what's re review committee? Don't know what review right. committee. And they said, well, we're launching a, a macular degeneration drug at the time, Macugen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I said, we'd like you to sit in on review committee and look at the materials that we're putting together to educate the doctors in the journals. So direct to consumer, the DTC information, yeah. which again, mm -hmm. didn't know what that term meant. And I think something that you and I were talking about prior is if I had applied for the position, I never would have applied because mm -hmm. I would not have thought I was qualified. I would have judged my capabilities. I would have said, I have no education in drug development. I've never been in corporate America. Who am I to sit in and sit on review committee? And this is a funny story. This is a true story. So of course I go in and I say, what do I have to lose? I still have my job, still seeing patients. At that time I was doing a lot of glaucoma surgery. I was had a very, very active uh, glaucoma practice in Long Island. And I was like, nah, what can I lose, right? Go in for a sure. few hours. The worst comes to worst, they fire me because I can't do the job. And I meet with the commercial team, mm -hmm. have a medical director. I was the acting medical director for the US on the launch. And they said, okay, we want you to review these materials and make sure they're medically accurate. So I said, okay. So the first thing they do is they show me a photo and it has to be age appropriate for macular degeneration. So it's a mm -hmm. woman with gray hair like me sitting in a chair and there's a doctor speaking to her about, you know, he's, you know, it's a posed photograph. Yeah, sure. And in the back on the wall of the office, it says doctor of gastroenterology. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not accurate. Mm -hmm. I'm like, great catch. I'm like, I, I can do this job. You're right. That's a good litmus test. <laughs> what, what is wrong with this photo? What is wrong with this photo? Is it medically accurate? And I'm like, not medically accurate. And then um, 
it was fun. It was just really fun. And six months into it, I was consulting one day a week. Six months into it, they said, look, we really want to hire somebody full-time. We need a full-time medical director. And at that point, I said, okay, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I was pregnant with Christina. So mm-hmm. we had to go back and get the babysitter, get the nanny. And I walked away from my practice and went into Pfizer full-time as the U.S. medical director and just wow. loved it. I think it was such a trajectory. It was such a learning curve. Like, you know, going, you yeah. know, from an academic lab into industry, but how else are you going to learn? There is no course that you can take that teaches you to do that role. And Absolutely. I never would have, I never would have applied, never would have left my practice. It was just a crazy phone call from a headhunter. Wow. It's interesting listening to this story from the perspective that I have of you now, when you say, I'm going to go back. You said, you know, I don't, I don't have an MBA. I don't have a PhD. You know, I, I didn't have any business acumen. And I'm thinking to myself, that does not matter. And you are the embodiment mm-hmm. of that not mattering. And Thank that you. I think boils back down to what you said. You're, you're a creative person. You're an incredibly energetic person because the, the joke when we used to work together is that somehow you were eventually going to master cloning technology so that you could manage to handle all all of your kids and their things and handle your practice and handle the business and uh, the other side hustles that you have of which there are many, you know, but um, I, I love this idea that you know yourself, you know what you're going to want. And so you pursue that and that must give you that energy and that drive to keep moving forward. Right. And you know, it's funny as I didn't, I always had the drive and I always had the ambition, but I didn't always have the confidence. Okay. And that came with age for sure. I wish I had the confidence when I was younger. Okay. I wish, you know, and and it's funny as you look back, I always had, because if I didn't have the titles, I didn't think I could achieve it. And I think as I got along and I said, wow, I was able to accomplish that without that title, without that training. Mm-hmm. And you look at some of the most accomplished people in various fields, and a lot of times they didn't even graduate college, you know? Right. Right. right? So I think we label ourselves so often. Um and I think the other thing that I've really learned is that there is no wrong decision in the sense that anything that happens, whether it's a success or a failure, you're still learning from it. It's always a learning experience. And that's another thing I try to um, teach my students. And when I mentor them, you know, a great example is, you know, like you, you know, You're in a PhD, you're in an academic place, you're applying for grants, you've got this really clear trajectory, and suddenly you find yourself in industry. And, you know, that job doesn't last forever. And you bounce around, and you bounce from different jobs and different positions. And then you look back and you go, wow, everything along the path has taught me something. And I am who I am, right? You wouldn't be doing this podcast if you were probably still in a lab working on oh, cell cultures. Absolutely not. Right? Absolutely not. No, that that's such a that's such a good point because as someone who recently 
very, very recently changed jobs and I was only in my position for a little over a year and I do get the eye rolls, you know, I just, I saw some old friends last weekend and they got, where are you working now? You know, it's all very funny, but, but you're right. This is a conversation that I had with my husband, you know, I, I've spent, you know, four years here, two years there, one year there. And it's every time you learn something. And I think even if it's a failure, so to speak, first yep. of all, there are some successes built in, obviously yep. there has to be, but even if it's even if it doesn't pan out and you don't have the 30 year career that you hear that your parents have had you know at the same time you do take away knowledge and in this case i took away a lot of knowledge about myself yes and yes. i think you learn at least in this case you know you you learn i don't want to stand for feeling disrespected Yep. I don't, you know, and, and I think that's because of the previous jobs that I've had before and working with people like you and others that we both know who are very good at empowering women yeah. to have the confidence. And so one day, I, I, I'm same as you. When I was younger, I had like no confidence whatsoever. And I think in a lot of ways that's bred into us, but that's a totally different conversation. Yes. <laughs> but you realize, you know, you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I got two advanced degrees. I can do better than this. Yep. And then you do, you yep. know? So I, I agree that these good and bad experiences shape you into this person that you end up being. And you know, it's funny when you talk about failures, my first position. So when Pfizer was getting out of ophthalmology, I knew I wanted mm -hmm. to stay in ophthalmology. So I left Pfizer. As you know, we moved out to Park City. I joined um, the University of Utah. And two very interesting takeaways. I maintained my MD and my um, credentials while I was at Pfizer, but I stopped operating. But I wanted to go back into academia. And so many people told me I could not go back into academia because I was in industry. And I said, this does not make sense. I am a clinician. I'm an ethical, well-trained ophthalmologist that should still have value. And when I left Pfizer, I really had a very hard time identifying who I was. So I was an ophthalmologist, but I stopped operating. And so often, mm -hmm. you know, we think of ophthalmologists as surgeons. So I said, am I less of an ophthalmologist? But then I said, I have all this background and now training in drug development, device development, regulatory, you know, understanding the landscape, the commercial place. I should be able to offer a skill set to people. And it was amazing how many people then came to me as a consultant. And then the third piece was um, what was great was the University of Utah allowed me to be an adjunct professor so that I could be on staff, see patients, work with residents, work with fellows, but then yet continue to run companies, start companies. And the first company I went to was Altheos, and we were a single asset company. Swear I will never be a single asset, and here I am a single asset company again. But, <laughs> but so much rides on that single asset, and the drug was not potent enough. It was a rokinase mm -hmm. inhibitor. We were mm -hmm. developing it at the same time Ari was developing their rokinase. We were very close in timing in terms of clinical development. And we just didn't have the efficacy. And we ended up stopping. We did a, a quick no-go 
uh, study to basically determine if the drug had efficacy. It didn't. And the decision was made to bring the asset, give the asset back to the Japanese company, Asai Kasai, and, and uh, close down the company. And it was so, you know, and I think you know this feeling too. I felt personally responsible. I felt yes. I had failed because I could not develop this drug. And what was so eye-opening is that I actually got kudos because we found that the drug was not effective and did not have enough of efficacy to make it commercially viable. And we closed the company and then saved the investors money. Okay. Rather, So they probably appreciated that. They appreciated it. So again, it was it like you said, you know, about successes and failures and everything you learn. It was really it was it was it was a great learning experience. Unfortunately, it you know it was it was a bummer for uh, yeah. the company, but it it was very insightful. You well, know, and you get to that point and you're valued because of your efficiency and your honesty, and really, you know, sometimes making the tough decisions. Sure. I think that's an important point to stick with for a second, because I think the perception of industry, you know, big, bad industry by academics is, you know, it's the dark side, you mm -hmm. know, and this is where um, people lose their sense of right and wrong. And this is where you're, you're just in it for the money. You're not in it for, you know, the, the love of the science or whatever. But what, what I'm hearing from you is that actually, well, we could both say absolutely not. That's <laughs> I think we're both still pretty ethical people. But on top of that, sometimes having that attitude of no, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to follow the science, the where it's directing us to, and I'm going to be the one to have the tough conversation and say this investment is not going to pan out. Let's let's back out now before you put in more money for a clinical trial that's not going to go anywhere. And it's not going to have value. And, yeah. um, you know, and it is, unfortunately, there are still, I remember um, it was George Spaeth and I've just a tremendous mentor and just a legendary um, physician in the whole field of glaucoma. So ethical. And I remember we were having a conversation about conflict and about ethics and you know, so often we do think that people in industry are in it, like you said, for the money. But if we look at the drugs we have, we would not have all this innovation in ophthalmology and in medicine in general if it was not for corporate America, if it was mm -hmm. not for pharmaceutical companies. And unfortunately, it does cost money. And I think that's another thing that people don't realize just how expensive it is. And even when I went into Pfizer, you know, as this kind of starry-eyed young, you know, clinician researcher, I had all these great ideas of what we could do with Macugen and we can add to the science. We were understanding anti-VEGFs in the eye and how they interacted with geographic atrophy and glaucoma and vascular events. And it was interesting because it was my commercial team, actually, and you know all the commercial players. Um, <laughs> But it was the question was, how is this going to make money for the company? Mm. And will this research drive sales? So it is that marriage because yeah. at the end of the day, if the company does not make sales, the company is going to fold and they can't do any more innovation. 
Um, And I think that's something too that I try to teach a lot of the the junior researchers. So I've always been very involved in Arvo on the mentoring side, um, Mm -hmm. uh, members in training. I've sat on that committee now for years, the ethics committee now. And one of the things I think that we really, we can do good science, but in order for pharmaceutical companies to be interested in it, it has to be commercially viable. Absolutely. And I think a lot of clinicians, a lot of researchers don't get that education from the bench. And then so often they've got these great ideas that just can't materialize because it's not unfortunately going to make somebody money. So it is. That's true. It's a tough balance. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, when I was involved in a product launch, I I think we probably had conversations like this, you know, either sitting in a coffee shop or even just on your couch in your in your beautiful home. Oh, we could do this. Oh, we could do this. We could do this, you know, and 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 those those moments are just absolutely lovely. And I, I love all those. I love all those conversations that I get to have with you because you, know, you just feel so energized afterwards. But then, yeah, you, you have to put everything on ice a little bit and think, okay, now what is that going to do? Yes. You know, and so it's, it's, a, it's a different mindset. But, you know, Diane Bovenkamp mentioned thinking about your lab as your company and you are the CEO. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the, these thoughts are not that different from how, the, uh, the PI of a lab has to think yes. because sure, he or she has plenty of ideas as well. And our, our listeners probably have a ton of ideas as well, but then you have to do a cost benefit analysis. You have to think, exactly. what is that going to, can it, is this going to move me closer to my first R01, for example, yes. or will be closer to graduating this student or whatever stage that you're in. And so I guess one point I'd like to make with that is that it is, the, the thought process in industry is not that different from academics. It's just in a different, in a very different setting. But, but secondly, uh, one of the things that Diane brought, the context that Diane brought that up in was we were talking about the skills that students in labs and students that are training right now, the skills that they acquired that actually could prepare them yes. for a career in industry. You know, if you, if you think about it, not just, you know, I'm, I'm a worker bee in a lab, but You've you've trained people. You've worked with teams. You've negotiate maybe you've negotiated prices. You've run budgets. You've you know managed projects. You know and all those things put together actually could make you a very valuable asset in a company if you can train your mind to think of it that way. Versus you know I'm just a little bit yes. in a lab. Exactly, and I think you know it's it's really interesting too because in any organization you know, academia, a lab industry, you have people that think outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's individuals that are very much focused on one specific area. And, yes. you know, and I think understanding where you gravitate to enables you to find that path. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is very much the same. It's like, okay, what is that work going to get me? You know, and, you know, another thing that we've spoken about all the time too, for the the young researcher, MD, PhD clinician, is if you have an idea, don't publish it right away. 
don't say yes. it right away. Let's let's talk about that in, in detail. So this is in the context of uh, intellectual property, right? Yes, correct. Okay. So for anyone out there who's listening, this this is very very important. If you have an idea that you think is patentable or something that you want to use to spin off into into a new venture, this this section is for you. So yes, please, and Barb. It's anything that is published or is it an abstract or even in an email could be prior art. And if it gets out or leaks out, especially if it's published, if you tried to then file a patent on that, it's prior art and you cannot publish that patent. You cannot file that provisional patent. So you're absolutely right. If you have an idea, it's so important to talk to an IP attorney. A lot of academic centers have you know, tech offices and, and to document, you know, um, if you have a, a lab manual, you know, put your ideas in the lab manual and, and you know, date and time stamp it with your signature. So it's um, it's very, very critical because you can lose the opportunity. And a lot of times it could be very, very, very costly. Um, there's one case in point that I know uh, an academician. Um, very, very well respected, very, very bright, um, found a new target for glaucoma and um, went on to present it at some of the meetings. And when he went to publish it, or um, sorry, not publish it, when he, he did publish it, and then when he went to file IP around it, the IP was non-existent. So other people were able to recreate that molecule against that target. Well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one thing that I t took away from working together with people who are doing drug development is if, if there is something that you are working with, be it a new molecule or a mouse model or anything, you know, anything new. Even yeah, mechanism, you know, mm -hmm. even a mechanism of action. If you find, I, I love the story and I don't know all the specifics um, of Murray Johnstone love him oh, yes. and it turns out he has he holds the patent for lash growth on prostaglandins sure does. and again there's a perfect example it was found as a safety concern mm -hmm. right on the prostaglandins when they were being developed and i remember hearing that pfizer um did not have any interest in lash growth at the time but Allergan obviously was interested and I don't know the whole arrangements with the patent, but um, it was Murray who actually filed the patent, you know, mm -hmm. on an observation, on a safety finding, on a drug that was being developed for glaucoma that, yeah. that had a lot of value. So it could be a new molecule, it could be a target, it just be could be a concept, it could be a finding with a current drug but it has to be patented. You have to file that provisional patent first. And I think that's so important because in a lot of ways, I, I think especially students, you know, they, they again, they want to be good little worker bees. You know, they, they want to help their PI get the next R01. They want to publish aspects of their dissertation to move things along, you know, and in, in some ways you're, you're trained with this mindset, you know, you're going, yeah. you're going to, you're, yeah, it's here. Here and together, we're all going to work together, the royal we, to advance glaucoma or advance this type of cancer um, and and improve our understanding of it together. But if 
I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's nothing wrong with going to your tech transfer office at your university and saying, hey, I've got this thing and mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if I should protect it. And hopefully, hopefully again, your, your mentor is like Karen Torahans who practically pushed her into that office and saying, yes, you should protect this and you should start a business with it. But, you know, hopefully you can find people who will support you in that and that each university should have at least somebody there yes. to, to help them with that process. Yep, so. Exactly. Good, good. Perfect. So besides that, how else could either a clinician scientist or a clinician in training, what do you think they can do while they're in school still to maybe either, I don't even know if I want to say improve their chances of getting a job in industry, but maybe prepare themselves if that's the type of career path that they want to go into. And you know, what's I think definitely getting involved in clinical research for sure. Okay. You know, if, if your um, academic centers doing clinical research, you know, drop by their office, understand what type of clinical research is ongoing, understand what an IRB, you know, what is an IRB? Why does it need, you know, ethics approval? How is it set up? There's some great courses online. City actually has a lot of great courses around drug development. In fact, any medical student or undergrad that wants to work with me on any of my current clinical programs at the University of Utah has to do a city um, a city course on clinical development. And it goes through, you know, good clinical practice, um, ethics committees, uh, what does an informed consent look like? What are vulnerable populations? What's needed? Um, what are HC, you know, IHC guidance, um, mm -hmm. you know, different harmonizations, uh, regulatory paths. So that's a good place to start. The other thing too is a lot of our, again, this is ophthalmology focused, but this would be for any organization or any specialty, um, Arvo, you know, again, go to your research meetings. Um, more of the research meetings probably are better positioned. We try to do educational courses. We do a bench to bedside on Saturdays before Arvo. So again, you know, I'm sure some of the oncology research meetings probably have very similar um, setups with programs. Um, sure. And then even just Google the FDA. You know, the FDA is always, you know, giving courses. Hmm. And it's really just trying to get those courses under your belt and just perusing information. Definitely. Is that something that PhDs could do as well? Like could, yeah. could a PhD or a graduate student go and find out what types of clinical trials are being done and maybe they're not handling the patients, but maybe they're doing something with patient records or coordination or something. And that's something that they could do as well. Yes, absolutely. And even public health, epidemiology. You know, when sure. you think about, let's just, you know, take a, you know, I think there is a lot of opportunity if people are drawn to device or drug development um, from any field, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. You know, one of the things, and just spinning off of this, but one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, yes, right? And how many times have we gone to seminars where you watch a student get asked a tough question, and rather than just saying, oh, that's a tough question, I don't know, I have to get back to you. They dig back in their memory and they try to come up with something. So how, how do you eat a nice big slice of humble pie and say, I don't know this and I need someone to teach me. And, you know, I think, it, um, I don't know if I, if I, I've, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I think 
I think you have to be okay with not knowing all the answers if you want to be that bigger picture person. Sure. That makes sense. But also I think it's, it just comes down to understanding that you, you can't possibly know everything. And I will say the, the conversation that I've had with some of the smartest people that I have ever met, they will say, you know, Oh, I don't know. Or, um, someone that we someone that we both know very well uh one dr peter farina would say he would who ran r d yep. for decades at, at bi and he said I, people would come to the room and i would say teach me yeah so, you know, I, he was a he was a chemist and he said what the heck do i know about designs for asthma inhalers nothing yeah so someone needs to give me a crash course in designs and prototypes and why this new why this small change would make a big difference and why this is something that again going back how is this going to make things more lucrative for the company by making it easier for patients delivering more accurate dosing anything like that and i always think about him saying that because again you look at people and you say gosh they know everything they're so smart and yep but I think in large parts because they're willing to say, I have no idea. You you tell me. Teach me about it. I think that's amazing. And I think that's something too, you know, my interest in, in IOP fluctuation and these spikes that we're now finding in the mornings with, um, you know, home monitoring. And so often my patients will ask me, well, why is it spiking at this point and not then? And And I'm like, I don't know. I said, right now we're sort of at the cutting edge of trying to understand this and you're actually teaching me i said you are the one that's teaching me um because we don't know all the answers and i i again when i first came out of medical school i felt like i had to have all the answers because if i didn't know the answer then i was not you know a well-trained ophthalmologist and the patient would not trust me and now i realize that i don't have all the answers and i have a very low threshold to tell a patient look this is what I'm thinking. I'm not sure. Let's get a second opinion. Let me ask my colleagues. I'll get back to you on this. And I think it, they really appreciate it because it's you're you're open to ideas, but yeah, you don't have all the answers. Um, and there was something else I was going to say, and now I forgot. Oh, that was the other thing you started to talk about too, which I think is so important when you were talking about Peter. Is why is this important? So we may have a great idea, we may have a novel new drug, a new device, but at the end of the day, what unmet need is it fulfilling? And I think from a development researcher, you know, industry, you always have to ask, what's the commercial value? Is it something that somebody would pay for? Sure. You know, and it needs to be both pieces. You know, it needs to fulfill an unmet need and you need to test that. You know, I think that's the other thing too, is if you have an idea, you need to get like-minded people behind you and you need to test that idea and see, is it, you know, is it you just drinking your own Kool-Aid or is it really an unmet need? And there's a great book that I wanted to mention. It's called Nail Scale It. And it's by um, Nathan Furr and Paul Ashtrom, I think is how you spell it, but Nail Scale It. And it's so, it's a great entrepreneurial book because it teaches you if you have an idea, 
nail it, like figure out what is the thing that's really going to matter. And it talks about the analogy of the iPhone. Like, why was the iPhone so innovative? And, you know, you can imagine it being much more complex with a lot more things. And it really just came down to if made a need. And even like the iPod, when it first came out, it was just simple. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we were able to scale it. But it's a, it's a great book for anybody who wants to, you know, be an entrepreneur. For, for you youngsters, an, an iPod was a device that we used to use <laughs> to listen to our music <laughs> with headphones that connected to the iPod. <laughs> yep. iPod Shuffle. Remember? Uh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very easy. Mine was hot pink. I loved my <laughs> hot pink iPod. Uh, I think I had the Nano. And yes. that changed bench research for me forever. Because now you had this little thing you could put in your pocket. You know, and we all, I think we all stopped talking to each other because we all had headphones in after that one Christmas. You know, we just and <laughs> were lost simple. in our own little worlds. You mm -hmm. know, it was simple. You're right. You're right. So sometimes, You're absolutely right. sometimes the best inventions don't need to be so complex. And if you can figure out what that need is, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. But absolutely. somebody has to be willing to pay for it. That's the other piece. So uh, let's talk about some of the other um, entrepreneurial uh, pursuits that you have had, which most of them are in the eye care space. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, what, which, one, which ones would you like to talk about before we get into your nonprofit space? Let's talk about, is, are there any of the other uh, um, ventures you'd like to talk about and what maybe lessons learned from some of these? You know, again, just a huge learning, you know, at the end of the day, no one had any doubts that the product would not work. And it actually um, was just shown to heal persistent corneal epithelial defects. But okay. it's sitting on the shelf. Fulfills yeah. a huge unmet need, but will never mm -hmm. get um, developed. And the patents are going to expire. So that was a, a, a very interesting learning. Um, my most recent, so obviously Cularis, so mm -hmm. developed which you know well, where you were, um, you know, working with me as a colleague. And we're developing a small molecule, topical small molecule, molecule for IOP lowering, working on mm -hmm. epistural venous pressure. And again, it's an interesting time because the rage these days is around sustained release and retinal therapies. Yes. So, you know, again, in thinking about the commercial landscape, there's a lot of generic drops available. So it always comes down to, yes, we need more IOP lowering. We need something that works on EVP that's very well tolerated, but we're back to that commercial. How is it going to yeah. get reimbursed? Yep. And what's interesting, too, is reimbursement is different in different parts of the world. So that's another okay. thing is to let. Yeah people know is they're thinking about an idea that they're trying to move off the bench is, you know, it may be reimbursed very differently somewhere else in the world versus the Absolutely. US. And then the most recent actually is um, my eyes, which is completely different, still in ophthalmology, but there we found an unmet need for getting the eye care home into patients' hands, even mm -hmm. on a mental basis. 
So yep. the iCare Home is a device that measures IOP that you can use at any point. It's based on rebound tonometry. And currently patients can't buy it. So they um, would have to get it through their doctor's office. But we realized that patients, even for a week, could get so much information from using this device that it was so impactful. Because as it turns out, looking at the literature, and we're publishing a paper on this, I put together a whole consensus panel, talk about trying to move the needle, that fluctuation is an independent risk factor for progression. But we never talked about fluctuation. We only talked about peak IOP in the office because we never had a good way to measure the fluctuation. And Absolutely. what we've been learning from the device in terms of IOP spikes that occur outside the office, and that's why I now call it you know, normal, what is normal, um, is just incredible mm -hmm. information. And I've been able to pick yeah. up huge spikes in patients into the 30s when mm -hmm. maybe 18 and 19 in the office on no treatment. And you really mm -hmm. start to have the discussion do you want to go on eye drops? Do you want to do an SLT? Um, should we act now because otherwise we're just waiting for damage? Right. So we're yeah, we're working with eye care to um, to to get it reimbursed, um, to get insurance coverage for it, a Hicks Picks code, and but it really I just stumbled upon an unmet need. Yeah, patient. And, you know, I, I want to back up a little bit uh, to talk about Cularis, since that's one of the big ways that we know each other from. But um, the first presentation that I ever saw your, your CEO, Therain2, do, oh, gosh, it's almost 30 years ago now, isn't it? Um, yes, almost 30. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Almost 30 years ago. Yeah. And when those came out, as Barb mentioned earlier, it was revolutionary. It was this huge, huge thing. And then there was nothing. There was not much in the way of pharmaceutical intervention, plenty of plenty of surgical um, innovation happening, but not pharma. And so, you know, the CEO of this new company gets up in front of a lot of really smart investor types and clinician scientists and everything at this meeting that we're at in San Francisco. And he says, we created a new eye drop. Why should you care? Yeah. Why should we, why do we even need a new eye drop? And he spent five minutes saying, this is why this drop will make a difference. And uh, he won the best pitch yep. award, as I recall, that year. Yeah, he did. He did. Because you have to, uh, you have to, as Barbara's saying, you have to identify what your unmet need is. And the other thing that I like about your My Eyes story is, you know, it's, it's you making an observation and others making an observation. And then when you get everybody together in a room to discuss and you realize this is probably more pervasive than we think. This is much more of an unmet need than we think. It, it's something that I want to emphasize to the listeners to say both of these stories reflect what happens when you get key stakeholders together yeah. in a room. Yes. And you start talking, you know, and it, it just goes back to the benefits of collaboration and when you meet new people and you talk to people and you say, this is why I think this is important um, for, for this podcast. I basically just asked my nieces and their friends, would you listen to this? And they said, sure. <laughs> I really hope they are. But, um, but, you know, I think when it comes to, when it comes to a new venture, when it comes to anything new, it's important to go to meetings, talk to people at your posters, meet other people at posters and say, 
you're seeing this too, I'm seeing this. And you know, then you can start collaborations like that. So um, the one thing that I could say about you, Barb, is you're phenomenal at helping people make connections. And so let's, let, let, let's talk about some of these connections that people can make and where they can meet other like-minded people. And you know, it's so funny because even for you know ophthalmology or for glaucoma, I learn so much from the cardiovascular space. And I don't go to cardiovascular meetings, but I just Google and I, I think about how is something working, you know? And even when I was at Pfizer, we were, you know, scratching our heads around a compound that we were trying to develop. And it, again, it was for glaucoma. And it was um, having some pro-inflammatory findings and epithelial uh, irritation, but it was really pro-inflammatory. And all I did was just Google the class of compounds and saw what it was doing as a drug or a molecule elsewhere in the body, this class. And I was like, it's causing inflammation elsewhere when it was given for some other thing. And I'm like, of course this makes sense. But um, I think we can learn so much by exactly that, keeping an open mind, um, looking at other therapeutic areas, looking how things carry over, and then just being open to conversations because you're, you'll never know. And it, again, getting back to my eyes, it was really funny because the way we started, and I think I told you know, things mm -hmm. heart rate monitor. And a heart rate yep. monitor. You know, so the two things I take from this is one, um, there's nothing wrong with finding ways to get patients more access to more of their own data. data. I mean, my my Apple Watch can apparently do an EKG. Yes. <laughs> yes. It can tell me if I'm in REM sleep, you know. And so I think I think patients are very open to that. But uh, the other thing, I want to go back to this concept of the IOP fluctuations because it was, it was, I believe, like cell and molecular biologists who actually took that observation in patients and said, okay, let's take some of these cells that grow, that live in the back of the eye, let's put them in cell culture and expose them to different atmospheric pressures. And they did this beautiful experiment where they elevated the pressure for several minutes at a time. And then they measured gene expression. And then they did it again and raised the pressure, lowered it, raised it, lowered it, raised it, lowered it, and measured the genes. And those cells that weren't exposed to a steady state high pressure reacted so differently when they were exposed to intermittent high yes. and low pressure. And it, it, it's just like, I'm sure we all know people who have just a steady state baseline, low blood pressure, you know, and, 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 you can survive like yep. that. Your body can adapt to that or whatever steady state you're in. But if conditions constantly change and you're never going to really feel well, or someone like you who lives in a mountain town, you go down, you go down to, you know, low elevation yeah. and then back up into the mountains and then low elevation back up into the mountains. You know, I think you always feel like you're going to die. But if you stay, if you stay up there for a few days, you do start to adapt. And, you know, just talking about something else you said in terms of getting information from other people. You know, and ophthalmology is really cool because we have so many biomedical engineers that come from biomedical engineering into ophthalmology. And I started asking the biomedical engineers exactly that question. If you take a tissue, let's just say the optic nerve, and you keep it at pressures between you're exposing the optic nerve or any lamina cribosa or any tissue, 
to pressures between 22 and 24. Like, let's mm -hmm. just say, or 24 to 26 or 22 to 26. What's worse? Is it worse to go from 10 to 18, mm -hmm. 10, 18, 10, 18? Or is it worse to go 24 to 26? And they said, oh, absolutely. The 10 to 18 puts a lot more stress on the mm -hmm. tissue. Mm -hmm. So is it not, you know, when we treat glaucoma and we see a patient with 24 and the knee jerk is, oh, you've got glaucoma, you're an ocular hypertensive, maybe they're not the ones that are at risk. Maybe it's the ones that are, you know, lower pressures with big fluctuations. So right. I think this data right now, we've got over a thousand patients that have used our service over two years. And it's so cool. And we've got a collaboration between Moran um, and Wilmer looking to identify, you know, the phenotypic um, parameters and just characteristics of different people with different glaucoma and who fluctuates and what therapies work. So it's pretty cool. It's fun. Yeah. That's my creativity side of me. Learning. Yeah, right? Learn. You know, and I, I will say whenever I speak to biomedical engineers or whenever I look at their posters, it looks like the matrix to me. It's just a bunch of characters and it makes absolutely no sense to me. And so I have no problem saying to any of those folks, okay, I need you to explain this to me like I'm an eighth grader. Yes. <laughs> what do these equations mean? <laughs> and why should I, why should I be interested in this? Because yep. I, do not understand. And I will say, I, I've never met a person who has rolled their eyes and said, Ugh, you know, I don't, I don't have time for this. I think if people show a genuine interest and, an, mm -hmm. and not just an interest in your work, but an interest in actually understanding yes. your work, that I think anyone's open to it. So that's a little nugget I would like to leave everybody is don't be afraid to ask. And you, you, and it's probably not a dumb question. So don't do that thing where you say, this is probably a dumb question. You know, just admit, I don't know this. Please explain it to me. You know, can you please, please teach me or explain it to me like you would to your elderly parents, you know, and, and I, people are always willing to do that. And I think it goes back to what you said before about how do you create that team and it is saying, I don't know this topic. I don't know this. Like, you know, yeah. come help me, explain to me. How does this fit together? But it's, yeah, I think it's all about networking. You know, so often we get so micro-focused and that's not, you need to be out there discussing. Um, that's why team meetings is so effective. You know, why do you put a group of people together? Why do you put an advisory board together with a lot of different, you know, insights? Why do you have diverse boards? Yep. Yep, absolutely. So let, let's switch gears a little bit, because as, as we talked about, you wear a multitude of hats from <laughs> raising a future Olympian and being an ophthalmologist and running companies and, and starting your own ventures. Do you want, do you want to talk to us about the, uh, the foundation? Sure. So in the last few minutes, you know, it's funny, I have not of all my kind of um, endeavors, this one has been probably the one that I don't talk about the most. Um, and I recently just um, made it more visible on my LinkedIn because we got an external validation from Charity Navigator. So it's very and you, 
of course. And you give uh, you give scholarship money to yes. children with dyslexia, right? So right now we're doing, so we knew we were giving the financial support and we thought that was sufficient. But what we realized in nine years is that our kids were still failing and dropping out of college. So upwards mm. of one third. And as you can imagine, if they don't realize what accommodations they need, if they don't realize that they should go to smaller colleges, if they don't realize that they could start at a community college and then go to a regular college to you know, increase their likelihood of success. Um, so now we do mentoring. So we do mentoring, which has kept our kids in the program and kept them in school. So we decreased our dropout rate to near zero. Um, and the kids stay in the program and now they go on to be mentors. So we've got the mentees becoming mentors and giving back to the freshmen coming into the program. And then we do a lot of resources, education, webinars. So it's, we, as we've heard it, the kids tell us they feel like they're part of a community. They're part of a community of people that get them and understand them and perfect strangers who believe in them. That's amazing. You know, I, um, you have a really beautiful and admittedly very emotional uh, TED talk that uh, that's out there to talk about the origins of the foundation. And obviously, we 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 won't be we won't go into that. But uh, one of the things that you pointed out that I just I remember my husband and I watched this TED talk, and he looked at me, and I think I told you this at the time. He looked at me and said, "I think I might be dyslexic," because he. All he knew is that he hated to read. Yes. And, and his handwriting is abysmal. I mean, I'm, I'm not telling any secrets. His handwriting is spelling. abysmal. Spelling. And spelling is abysmal. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I have to proofread everything that he puts out into the world because it's, and, and no, no offense, but if anyone sees any of my uh, posts on Instagram and you see odd misspelled words, I did not post that. <laughs> you will see later. The, it, the spell checker has come through and, and corrected. But anyway. He, he's a, he's a brilliant guy, yes. but the way he takes in information is he listens. And he listens he, to podcasts and YouTube, yes. and that's how he learns, and in, rather than reading. And that's exactly what we're trying to teach our kids. You know, if you're going to go into college, don't take a lot of classes that have you reading all these books. Ask for podcasts, ask for books on tape. There's so many accommodations. Get half time on testing. And, and you know, it's interesting too. So the um, so I'm I, then you know from my TED talk that I'm also dyslexic, but I wasn't as severe as Joseph. But the same thing, my spelling is terrible, my handwriting is terrible. Um, the joke is is that the rain has asked me to uh, to be the secretary at our board meetings. <laughs> Painful. It's so painful. Um, but yeah, and you learn to compensate. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I always had support. Joseph had support. So we really wanted yeah. to help so many kids who, who don't have the support. And we get over 250 applicants a year. And um, it's just heart-wrenching. Because still to this day, there are kids that are so smart, so gifted, all they want to do is have an education and they're constantly being told you're not trying hard enough. You know, you, you, sh you know, you, yeah, just basically, yeah, you don't, they're being brought down rather than built up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually feel like that, that almost, this is a, a great place to close because that almost embodies your entire career. You, it seems like you have made this life of building people up. 
and helping you see their potential, myself included. I'm sure anyone who's listening to this who knows you would would agree that that's what you do. That's what you do best. And I and I guess I want to point out that at least for my listeners, that's how people should be. That's how mentors should be. And you should look for people who elevate you and challenge you, but always will lend a hand when you need to. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a, that's a really good, good place to close it. Are there any, are there any closing thoughts that you want to give for, for our listeners? No, but thank you. You know, I always say I'm sort of the, the Pollyanna. I, I definitely see the glass half full and the potential. And you're right. I think you're going to make me cry. I think I do. Sorry. That's okay. But yeah, I look at someone and I see their potential even as a manager. Yeah. You very much do. Right. You very much do. And you, you were the one who reached out to me and said, I think you could do this role that is in this new company that I'm starting. And then when I found my next role and then ultimately my next role, I mean, you were one of the first persons I thought of to say, I, I, I want to talk to Barb and I want to see what she thinks about this because, because you're, yes, you're, you're, you, you could be, as you say, Pollyanna-ish, but at the same time, you're, you're very realistic. And I think that there's a very good balance of, and it's important to find people who will look you in the eye and say, yes. Yes, I love you. Yes, I respect you. But that's not your strongest place or that's not where your talents belong. And I think that that's so important to find in in mentors. That you're absolutely right. It's it's asking yes and I do that's what I do for my students and my kids and it's funny I never thought about how it translates to the um to the scholarship. But you're right. It's like look at your strengths. Don't don't focus on the negative, but be realistic what you're capable of, you know. And again, I mean, I joke, you know, don't ask me to I would love to write a book. I will never be able to write a book, <laughs> you know. Um it's just not my strength. Um yeah. but you know, knowing what you're capable of and finding that mentor who does believe in you, but also is realistic, you know, because again, you don't want somebody to sugarcoat it, but you want sure. somebody that can really help you and be there for you. And yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think the, the other thing I would add to that is be willing to be willing to accept that advice. Cause I can definitely yeah. think of times when uh, people have told me, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. And I've said, no, 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 it'll be fine. You know, and if if enough people tell you something, then you you probably should listen. And That's yes, and you know what? That gets back to to nail it, scale it. Because if you go out with an idea and you talk to twenty people and nineteen say, "I don't think that's such a great idea," then kill it. Or if they say change it this way, you know, take their advice. So yeah, yeah. And if the one person who says, no, it's brilliant is your mother, then you probably should ask somebody else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's brilliant. And when, when all my husband's uh, aunts and his mother all come back to me, the podcast is brilliant. Thank you. But uh, yeah, I, I think you're biased, which of course I appreciate. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, Cynthia, yeah. just to kind of get back to, um, to Mike. And I think you're so right. So many people don't realize you know, and he hated to read and, um, but look how gifted and brilliant he is with IT and, you know, um, he's building cars. a car. He's built two cars in our garage. Exactly. And that's, On his that, own. yeah. And that was Joseph, you know, he would take apart and put together, 
you know, different types of fax machines and printers, but yeah, he couldn't, couldn't write or read or spell. Um, yeah. I feel like now we're getting better at recognizing, recognizing strengths in the less traditional way, but certainly yes. when he was growing up and when I was growing up, I mean, it was, you know, what reading, writing and arithmetic, you know, yep. the big three. Yep. And if you couldn't read, you were held behind and then you only yep. failed further down the road because the reading only got harder. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, but thank you. Thanks for asking about everything. This has been great. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I as you know, I, I could talk to you for days and I'm sure at one point we're going to have you back because there's, there's so much more to discuss and I would love to get you on a panel with some other like-minded people to give some advice and just talk about some best practices. You know, I think, I think that would be absolutely wonderful But for now. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you, sweetie. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Thanks. Thanks. Happy holidays to you. I'd like to thank Dr. Barbara Roscoe again for joining me today. Um, and happy holidays to everyone. I think this is going to be our last episode of 2023, but we have some outstanding guests lined up for next year. So everyone, please uh, be safe. Celebrate however you want uh, with whoever you want. And we'll see you next year. Thanks for listening.